Our Old Testament lesson today comes from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. It should be found on page 604 in your pew Bibles or 1154 in the large print. Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. Lord, we know that you alone are worthy of our worship. God, it's to you that we turn our attention at this time and this place. And Lord, we pray that you would that you would hold us. You would hold our attention on you, that everything that we see, everything that we experience, we would see and experience in light of who you are. The ways that you have been at work, and the ways you continue to work, and the ways that you have promised you will. Or we ask this morning, as we hear your word read and proclaimed, God, that by your word and by your spirit, you would continue the work that you have begun in us, drawing us close to you and changing us from the inside out into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen. Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, and untie the cords of the yoke? to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called 
repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Turning then to Luke 24. Verses 25 through 35. This is after when Jesus had been raised from the dead. It's actually the, uh, the evening of that first Easter Sunday. And Jesus comes up uh, walking alongside some of the disciples who don't recognize him. He has them explain to him what's been going on. And then, he steps in in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I mentioned earlier this morning that today is uh, Super Bowl Sunday and because of that, there will be a lot of uh, Super Bowl parties, I'm sure, this evening. And yet, there are enough people who do not care about football. But don't worry, we're not going to spend the whole sermon talking about that. But, there are enough people who don't care about football, but who will still go to a Super Bowl party. Because if you've ever been to a Super Bowl party, you know that a lot of those parties, the, the game is just really background noise. <laughs> to everything else that's really going on. And yet, that's what it seems like it's going to be centered around. Oh, we're going to have a Super Bowl party. We're all going to get together, and we're going to watch the game, and then you, you get together, and nobody watches the game. And, and really, I suspect that plenty of people who will go to Super Bowl parties tonight would not notice if somebody just put on a tape of last year's game. Wouldn't notice at all. In fact, if you just had a reel of Super Bowl commercials playing in the background, there are a lot of people who wouldn't notice that either. They'd come and go, wasn't that a great party? And you say, but we took out, we took out the thing that this was supposed to be about. <laughs> and yet nobody missed it. And here's why I bring that up. Not so that everybody pays attention to the game tonight, but because we do this all the time. Where we have the things that are the essential things, and then we add all sorts of accessories and extras onto it. And then we lose that essential core of what it was all about to begin with, and we keep all the accessories, and then we wonder how we've missed it. This is what happened, by the way, when you see in, uh, in Israel, 
the people that Jesus is on the most when he is constantly getting on to them and saying, you've missed it, you've missed it, you've missed it. It's not the people who were completely rejecting God entirely. In fact, those are the people who are flocking to Jesus. The people he kept saying, you're missing it, are the people who knew their Bibles the best. That's weird. But the reason why he kept getting on to them is because even though they had their Bibles and they had under, and they'd read all the laws, they'd memorized all this stuff, what they had missed was what was at the center and what it was always supposed to be about, which was a relationship with God that they didn't have. And so what they'd done is they'd taken what God had said and they'd built up all these other things around it and said, okay, well, if God says don't, and this is, by the way, what happened even in the Garden of Eden where uh, the serpent comes to Eve and says, are you really not supposed to eat from any tree? Well, no, that's not it. And she says, no, 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 no. We can eat from any tree. But God did say you're not supposed to eat from this and you're not even supposed to touch it. God did not say. She's taking what he'd already said. She's adding more things to it. This is what the Pharisees did. This is what people do all the time, where they added more and more things around what God had actually said. And then they kept the things that they had added around it, and they dropped out what was essential, what was at the heart of the matter. And in doing so, they'd lost that relationship with God. They'd lost the heart and what it was all supposed to be about. This is why Jesus, when he gets onto them, says, your teachings are just rules taught by men. But it has nothing to do with what it was that it was all supposed to be about. Now, like I say, we do this all the time in all kinds of ways. And uh, I bring it up today because this is the, one of the things that has been happening in the church generation after generation. We're in the church we will add all kinds of helpful things. And then we will keep those things and drop out what's at the heart of it. You look at the way that we celebrate Christmas today. The whole reason that we started celebrating Christmas was to rejoice and celebrate the birth of Jesus into this world, that God sent his son, that God himself would be, it would come to us in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it's all supposed to be about. And yet, we kept adding helpful ways. We'll put Christmas lights up. Because light, Jesus is the light of the world, and that will remind us of Jesus. And so we'll have lights. Well, now we have these Christmas light competitions where people have to try to outdo each other by having the most lights. And whoever can do it without getting electrocuted wins or something, I don't know. But it has nothing to do with Jesus anymore. And so we kept the thing that was supposed to remind us of him, and we lost him. We do this all the time. And in the church, we're in danger all the time of doing this in even the way that we gather together for worship. And I think it's really helpful every now and again to pause and say, what is essential? What are the things that we need to make sure that we keep at the heart of who we are and what we do together. And that, you know, we can have other things as well as a part of that. But if something has to go, what is it that needs to stay? Because if we don't ask that question and we don't look at that carefully, we will say, we've got too many things, something has to go, and we'll just start throwing out what's essential. And then we don't become a church would become a caricature of the church. In Acts chapter 2, we see the early church, and I mean the really early church, 
from the day of Pentecost onward, where uh, Peter has gotten up and he's proclaimed the good news of Jesus, who the crowds heard first, of course, as bad news, because they were the ones who'd been saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter explains that the one you crucified was God in the flesh. And they said, well, then there's no hope for us. They said, ah, but there is. Repent and be baptized in his name. And you will receive uh, forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. It's for all of them. It says 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then we get to verses 42 through 47. Passage this morning. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. <clears throat> Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is what the church looked like in those early days. And we say, okay, so is this then what it should look like for us? Should we be having everything in common? Should we be meeting together in the temple courts every day? How much of this is the essential parts? How much of this is what it ought to look like for us? And what is it uh, that may change year to year, place to place? I would submit that that first line is what is essential. This is what they devoted themselves to because this is what's essential. And then the way in which it worked out in their lives may look a little different for how it works out in our lives, but those four things are the things that are essential to a Christian church. And I say that because you can find churches around the world that look very different. And I mean the architecture of the buildings look different, the style of music they have is different, uh, whether or not they have music may be different. Uh, all the ways they dress, the arrangement of pews or no pews, <laughs> whether they're meeting indoors or outdoors, how often they meet, what day and what time, all of those kinds of things might look very, very different. But you know what? You can have all of those things look exactly the same and still not have a church if you don't have these four things. But you can have all those things look different and still have a church if you have these four things. What are the four things? Read them again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is what's at the core, at the heart of who they are as Christians. The first thing that's mentioned is the apostles' teaching. You say, oh, I wish we had the apostles' teaching today. Wouldn't that be nice? I have news for you. <laughs> You're probably holding it in your hands right now. That is one of the criteria of books that made it into the New Testament. Was this actually from an apostle or by someone who was very, very closely associated with an apostle? Because that's what this is supposed to be. Is that, uh, is the teaching of the apostles. 
And you say, okay, so that's the New Testament. So we can just keep the New Testament and throw away the Old Testament, right? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. In fact, when you read through Peter's sermon he just preached, most of it was quoting the Old Testament and talking about how the whole Old Testament was all about Jesus. And it was because they had misunderstood the Old Testament, they'd missed Jesus. And in fact, most of uh, the New Testament teaching is calling us back to the Old Testament story again and again so that we would understand how Jesus didn't just show up one day, but how God had been preparing the world from the very beginning for him to show up. And what it, and therefore what it means. If you don't have the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of the New Testament that won't make any sense at all. In fact, this is where we just read in Luke where uh, Jesus said to those disciples on the road on that first Easter Sunday. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So this is what the early Christians are devoting themselves to. Regularly giving themselves over to the apostles' teaching. We want to know more about who this Jesus is. Because, by the way, if you read through the New Testament... Jesus is pretty central in all of it. And not just that he's the, um, the central figure in the lives of the apostles, but he's the central figure, as the apostles proclaim, he is the central figure in all of history. It all is about him. And so from the very beginning, it's been pointing forward to him, and after uh, his death and resurrection, everything either points back to when he was here or points forward to when he will come again, He is the central figure in all of history. We even divide our dates in our calendar based on before Jesus and after Jesus. He is the central figure in all of history. And so they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. We want to know more, more and more and more about how it is um, that, that who Jesus is makes a difference in our lives. Secondly, to fellowship. Fellowship. This is different than uh, just coffee and donuts. It's different than a pizza party. This is the kind of deep, meaningful relationships and uh, coming together between people who are united in Christ. In fact, it flows out of their being devoted to the apostles' teaching about Jesus, that they have fellowship in Jesus. This is why uh, it's really easy to find unity or common ground with people when you all have the same enemy, right? Everybody um, Everybody gets scared of something or someone or gets angry about someone or something. And it doesn't matter if you disagree on everything else. If you find out you're both upset about the same thing, man, you're close, aren't you? Oh, we got a bond. But you don't. And as soon as that threat goes away, or as soon as that person you're upset about goes away, yeah, we got nothing anymore. Finding unity and purpose to be sustained over the long haul about something that you are for instead of something you're against is very different. 
I mean, it's really easy for all of us to, uh, a couple of years ago, oh, we're all upset about PCUSA. You know, all, all, there's us versus them kind of thing. But what about when we're together, not because we are against something else, but because we are for Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us? This is a very different thing. And this is where you find unity in the church, not only in the early church, but all through the ages. A unity that's very different in the church. Because you have people who are rich and poor, united in Jesus. You have people who are um, socially liked and socially not liked, united in Jesus. You have... uh, You have people who are every kind of race, gender, class, everything. You have people of very different political opinions, united in Jesus. And coming together, not because we agree on everything else, but because we know who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And in that, we do have unity, and we understand that we are brothers and sisters, and we are a family, uh, the family of God. That is very different. And it's this kind of fellowship that we see in the early church. So this uh, group that was a crowd before, crucify him, crucify him, they were all against Jesus. That united them. They didn't really unite them. They were just a crowd. But they're not a crowd anymore. Now they're a family. So they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Hang on, we have to back up to the fellowship again. This is what explains what you see down there later when it says, uh, all the believers were together and held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Some people read this and they get really nervous and say, "Uh uh-oh. This sounds like socialism. This is the the communists rewriting our Bibles for us. I don't know if I want anything to do with that. That's not what's going on. What this is describing here is not a new system of government or the way in which people are being uh, mandated with taxes and that sort of thing. No. What it's saying is these people who were a crowd before are now treating each other like you would family. If you are a part of a family and one member of the family uh, is sick or in need, what do the other members of the family do? Personally sacrifice and give of what they have to take care of the one who's in need. That's how it works. But you don't necessarily do that for people who aren't part of your family. But what Luke's telling us here in Acts is that's exactly what the early church did, is they started taking anybody, anybody, who is in need, and treating them as though they were family. And saying, I will give of what I've got. I will sell my stuff to help you out if you are in need. Because I will value you above my things. Same thing we do in family. This is the kind of fellowship that it was. Um, Not something that was mandated, but something that just came out of the unity and the love they had for each other in Christ. Third, the breaking of bread. This could have said they ate together. But it doesn't just say they ate together. It talks about the breaking of bread. 
you think that might be on purpose? That is more than just eating together, but it's eating together in a way that reminds us of who Jesus is and what he did for us. When Jesus broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. When he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples uh, on another occasion and said, give this to the 5,000 people, not because you had it in you to do this, but because I have done this for you. When he broke the bread for the disciples on that Easter Sunday evening and they recognized him and they saw him where they had missed him before. And now here Luke says they were devoting themselves to breaking bread together as a way of eating together in remembrance of Jesus. That he is at the center of everything they're doing together. That is why they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's why they are having fellowship with all kinds of people. And that is why they are um, breaking bread together. He's at the center of everything. And then, of course, to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer. We have a church that is not praying. It's probably not a church. Think back to what I was talking about earlier, where you can add all these other things and you lose the heart of it. If the reason that Jesus came is that we would be able to have a relationship with God again, and if prayer, in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the primary way through which we have this relationship with God, then if we keep all the rest of it and lose that, we've missed it. This is why I say these four things. You look around the world, you look at all times in history, you find a gathering of people who have these four things that they are devoted to, you've got the church. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Other than that, if they're devoted to these things, you've got the church. And if you do not have these things, if you have people who say, you know, we'll gather together and we will sing and we will eat together, but we're not going to study the word of God. We're not going to look at the apostles' teaching. We don't want to. That's for other people some other time, not for us. You've missed it. Or if you say, we'll do that. We'll do Bible study all day long. But we're going to do it as a way of showing that we are better than other people and we're going to keep them on the outside. You missed it. The fellowship that comes as being united in Christ. Or if you have people uh, who are welcoming, who are studying, who are welcoming in fellowship and yet are not breaking bread together, which is one of the things that Jesus clearly said to do, so we remember that he is absolutely at the center of all of it. This is the reason why we do everything. Because of what he did for us. You don't have it. Or if you're doing all those other things and missing the actual communion with God, you've missed it. Now, I do want to point out one other thing. When it says every day they, verse 46 and 47, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is just showing how it is that they were doing these things. But it says they, uh, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added the number daily those who were being saved. Do you hear the mood that comes through here? You don't have a group of people 
you were saying, well, I guess if these are four things we've got to do, I guess we've got to do those four things. But they are doing these four things because of how life-giving they are. They are doing these things because it is in the doing of these things that they are celebrating the life that they have in Jesus and that they are experiencing the life they have in Jesus together. And as they are doing this, they are experiencing the joy of salvation, and this is coming out in praise to God, and in, it's even affecting the people around them. They're not even a part of their group. They're not even Christians. And yet, they are still uh, says, enjoying the favor of all the people. This is infectious. As they are joyful, no matter what their circumstances, as they are praising God, as they are gathering together, as they are worshiping him, and as they are willing to sacrifice for the needs of others. This, life-giving. This is what we are to be about. It's what every church is to be about. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. I mentioned earlier uh, in the children's sermon about uh, football practice. The reason they practice football, the reason you practice piano, the reason you practice learning to drive, starting driver's ed with my oldest son, expect all sermon illustrations for the next six months to be about driving. Um, but the, the reason you practice these things is we have, um, there's been a lot of research into this, by the way, that it, our actions are not only determined by what we believe, though that's a big part of it, but also by our habits. And when we intentionally practice and build those habits into our lives, then those are the things that become our new default, or, to put it another way, our second nature. Nobody is born able to play the piano brilliantly. But the more that you devote yourself to practicing play the piano, (laughs) over time, the more natural it becomes. The more you practice football, the better you get at football. The more you practice driving, the more natural it becomes to where you can drive from place to place and get there and think, "Did, did I just drive here? How did that happen? Because it comes by second nature. The more we devote ourselves to these four things, the more this becomes part of who we are, not only because it's what we believe, but because it's just what we do as people who've been transformed by Jesus. Receiving, in fact, a new nature. If this is who we're to be, we can have all these other things that help us to do these things. But as the church, let's never, ever, ever drop any of those out because, well, now we, we just don't have time for everything. Let's, let's lose one of those. Let's keep this at the core of who we are, because this is what it looks like. This is what it means to be the people of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.